Let's begin then. Euthanasia. The question here is, do we have the right to choose our time and manner of death? Because you see, that's what we're talking about today, the right to die. And if you ask probably anyone else, they can tell you, yeah, I have the right to die. Sounds good, but is it true, especially for Christians? That's what we're going to be looking at this evening. Um, let's define it first, if we can get this to work. Definition of euthanasia. The word euthanasia originated from the Greek language. And if you knew Greek, right away you'd see that word in the middle, than, or thanasia. Eu means good, and thanatos means death. So when you talk about euthanasia, you are talking about good death. Now again, that sounds good. But you see, it, it depends on how you define Good. What is good for some people is not good for others. And that is what we're seeing going on now. Some define euthanasia to include both voluntary and involuntary termination of life. Both voluntary and involuntary termination of life. One meaning given to the word is the intentional termination of life by another. And notice, at the explicit, that means specific, definite, request of the person who dies or who wants to die. That is, the term euthanasia normally implies that the act must be initiated by the person who wishes to commit suicide. It's the person who should be doing the di using a method to kill themselves. Because in the final analysis, uh, uh, euthanasia is suicide. The killing of oneself by oneself. But now you see, because of medical advances, there's a lot of complexity that has come about. Let's look at it. I'm going to give you some more meanings, because you're going to come across these terms and I want you to be able to at least to be aware of them a little bit uh, if you're not now. The intentional killing by act or omission, something you do or something you don't do, of a dependent human being of his or her alleged benefit, for his, her alleged benefit. In other words, most people who want to do it, either for themselves or being done by someone else, say it is for the patient's benefit. The key word here is intentional. If death is not intended, it is not an act of euthanasia. In other words, you can care for the person, but if death is not intended, then it's not an act of euthanasia. You've heard the term voluntary euthanasia. This is when the person who is killed has requested to be killed. All right? This is when the person requests to be killed. Voluntary euthanasia. Non-voluntary euthanasia should mean the opposite. When the person who is killed made no requests and gave no consent to be killed. Now, that's what the parents were arguing for Terry. 
She didn't request this. You see? Her husband is arguing the other side. Then there's involuntary euthanasia. Now, we, 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 we are, you're going to see some overlapping here, and these are different terminologies used many times for the same thing. This is when the person who is killed made an expressed wish to the contrary, in other words, didn't want to do it, or who has not explicitly requested aid in dying. This is most often done to patients who are in a persistent vegetative state and who will probably never recover consciousness. This is what many say that Terry Shriver was in a persistent vegetative state. And the idea here is say, who will probably never recover consciousness. That's a human decision. For every person who you say that uh, will never recover consciousness because of a situation, you probably could find somebody who was something similar like that and did in fact recover. So when you make statements never recover, that, is, that could never be an absolute statement. In, uh, assisted suicide. This is another, def another word that is used. This is when someone provides an individual with the information, guidance, and means to take his or her own life with the intention that they will be used for this purpose. Do you know somebody who did this in the States? Kabakian, exactly. He finally got caught with the last person he did. All right, but he was doing this for quite a while. Um, that's assisted suicide. Then there's physician-assisted suicide. You see, assisted suicide is used when anybody does it. Physician-assisted suicide, this is when your doctors do it. There's one who's supposed to care for you and protect you and take care of your life. When it is a doctor who helps another person to kill themselves, it's called PAS, physician-assisted suicide. Now, there's also a term you might hear, active euthanasia. This involves causing the death of a person through a direct action in response to requests from that person, such as by giving a lethal injection. Now, you see, we talk about living wills. Some people actually put this in their living will. If I come to such and say, I want you to give me a lethal injection, or I want something done. That's active euthanasia. All right. Then there's euthanasia by omission. This is by what you don't do, and you could do, and perhaps then you should do. This is intentionally causing death by not providing necessary and ordinary, usual and customary care of food and water. This is many people were saying in the case of Terry. This is in their minds in euthanasia by omission, but they were still calling it murder. They were calling it judicial murder because they had the rights of the court behind them to withhold uh, food and water and so on. Passive euthanasia. I hope you're seeing how complex this whole thing is. Passive euthanasia. This is the hastening the death of a person by altering some form of support and letting nature take its course. Hastening the death of a person, because remember, with euthanasia, death is always objective. By altering some form of support and letting nature take its course. Again, that's what people are saying with Terry. Stop feeding it to let nature take its case. If she is all right, she gets strong enough, she can swallow and take her own food. 
But here are some examples of how this could be done. Removing life support equipment, like turning off a respirator. You see, um, when in the United States, when these laws were originally made up, this was what was normally uh, spoken about, about not taking away life-sustaining support. It has to do with turning off a respirator, things that help you to breathe. But it never put in the idea of a feeding tube. You see, that's another problem. That's another area of the problem. Or stopping medical procedures or medications. This is all passive euthanasia. Or stopping food and water and allowing the person to dehydrate or starve to death. Now, that's how it fits in with Terry. You see? But most people wasn't looking at a passive they were looking at an active part of killing by omission, by not providing, you see. So it is quite an involved thing. Another way is not delivering CPR and allowing a person whose heart has stopped to die. In other words, you don't try to resuscitate at all, you see. You don't use the paddles, you don't do anything. If they have a heart attack or something, just let the person die. Passive euthanasia. Now, these procedures, and by the way, I've gathered these information from all sorts of sources, and I was thinking about giving the credit to it, but if I did, I would be credited all over the place. And uh, we have put in our own, uh, our own thinking on it as well, so uh, that's how we get this information. These procedures are performed on determining ill, suffering persons so that natural death will occur sooner. It's also done on persons in persistent vegetative state Individuals with massive brain damage who are in a coma from which they cannot possibly regain consciousness according to their diagnosis. Passive euthanasia. Now, here's some things that euthanasia is not. There's no euthanasia unless the death is intentionally caused by what was done or not done. There's no euthanasia unless the death is intentionally caused by what was done or not done. And so, some medical actions that are often labeled passive euthanasia are no, form, are no form of euthanasia because there's no intention to take life. That aspect is gone. They didn't, they didn't want to take life. They were just doing things that would we say normal. Also, uh, euthanasia is not commencing treatment that would not provide a benefit to the patient, not commencing treatment, beginning treatment that would not provide a benefit to the patient. Secondly, withdrawing treatment that has been shown to be ineffective or too burdensome or too unwanted. Thirdly, it's not the giving of high doses of painkillers that may endanger life when they may have shown to be necessary. This is very interesting. Many times they give painkillers to help the person's pain but that medication also helps to kill them. You see, that's a very problematic situation. And that happens in, in a lot of cases in my readings. It's amazing how often that goes on, especially with older people, with older people. And the doctors know that is helping them to die, but they also know it's giving them some ease right now. And many times the people choose that. I cannot go through this pain. I need this. And they might not even want to die, but they just can't take the pain. 
Now, here's some reasons given for euthanasia, and I'll go through it quickly. We'll talk about them. Unbearable pain, as I just mentioned. Right to commit suicide. I should have put that in quotes. People should not be forced to stay alive. Those are some of the reasons. Let's look at the unbearable pain, because this is the major one. This is probably the major argument in favor of euthanasia, that the person involved is in great pain. But now, of course, today, advances are constantly being made in the treatment of pain. And as they advance, the case for euthanasia or assisted suicide is proportionately weakened because the better drugs we have, you'll find that you can take care of people who have severe pain and, 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 and they, could, they wouldn't feel a thing. Uh, this is not, I mean, this might be out of context in some place, but my son um, broke his leg the other day and he went to the hospital. And the doctors gave him something. He went through the surgery he awoke and he was talking to his wife. Hours after the thing happened. And then she said, Yeah, with the surgery. Say, surgery? What surgery? Did I have my surgery? Now he's gone through the whole thing and he didn't feel a thing. He didn't even know he had the surgery. Now, what do you think caused that? You think that's just his self will? Mm, that was drugs, you see. And they're having drugs now be able to affect things like that, you see. So this idea of unbearable pain now, what we're saying is that's been losing some of its power to kill people because of these advances in drugs. Nearly all pain can be eliminated. And in the rare cases where it can't be eliminated, it can still be reduced significantly if proper treatment is provided. The solution is to mandate better education of health care professionals on these crucial issues, to expand access to health care, and to inform patients about their rights as consumers. One of the things I was amazed at in my studies reading this is that they have determined that most of the doctors, most of the people, in, even in, in emergency situations, do not know about most of the real good painkillers. It's amazing. They don't really know how to care for people with severe pain. That's an amazing thing to me. It's amazing. And so what they're pushing for is now trying to make it a demand that doctors and those who help in these situations have to learn about these, these type of things. In other words, the stuff is there, but people don't know how to use it. Everyone, whether if it be a person with a life-threatening illness or a chronic, by the way, I'm going um, to, normally I don't give you all of my notes, but I'm doing that now because I want to go through it, otherwise I'll start preaching. Everyone, whether it be a person with a life-threatening illness or a chronic condition, has the right to pain relief. And notice that, they have a right to pain relief. It's amazing how we use these terms and throw them around, the right that we have. Where do we, where do we get right from? Who's the source of these rights people talk about? You see? Who's the source? For a Christian, the only source for any rights comes from God. Not from the state, not from ourselves, but from God. Anyway, um, most doctors have never had a course in pain management. So they're unaware what to do. If a patient who's under doctor's care is in excruciating pain, there's definitely a need to find a different doctor. In other words, what they're saying now, if you go to a doctor and you have a pain, you always get the pain the doctor can't do for it, that you better go find someplace else because he's not keeping up to date. But that doctor should be one who will control the pain, not one who will kill the patient. 
There are board-certified specialists in pain management who will not only help alleviate physical pain, but are skilled in providing necessary support to deal with emotional suffering and depression that often accompanies physical pain. And as we go on, we'll see this idea of emotional suffering, emotional pain, is also another major factor people want to die. They cannot take it emotionally. You see? They cannot face it emotionally. Euthanasia advocates stress the case of unbearable pain as reasons for euthanasia, but then they include a drug state. Now, this is another interesting thing. Perhaps this is in case virtually no uncontrolled pain cases can be found. Then they can say that these people are drugged into a no-pain state, but they need to be euthanized from such a state because it's not dignified. Now, here's the thing. First of all, they said he shouldn't be pain. You give him drugs that kill the pain. Then you say that's dehumanizing. They should be killed instead. See, that's where those who advocate euthanasia have come. They can't take the pain. They've got drugs now that care for pain. But you shouldn't give them those drugs because that's dehumanizing. They should die instead because they're living in a drug state. Amazing. And I ask here, do you see the opening for the slippery slope? Do you know what we mean when we say slippery slope? It's the same idea of domino effect. If you start here, you can be opened away, of course, to go into worse things. Once there's a beginning, you're just going to keep going down. That's what happened with abortion. You allow for abortion, you can be sure that you can allow for euthanasia. You see? And then it's going to be very difficult to decide between abortion and homicide and infanticide. It's going to be very difficult to decide for people who think along these lines. And that's the slippery slope. Abortion, uh, um, infanticide, you know, the killing of babies. And, and, and then you go up to um, uh, euthanasia. Is it mercy killing or is it murder? How do you measure dignity? We talked about that today. We measured by the nature of the person. This slides to euthanasia on demand. In other words, the same way we have abortion on demand in the United States, uh, the idea is that you're going to have euthanasia on demand as well, and almost for the same reasons. The pro-euthanasia folk have already started down the slope, and there's no doubt about that. And it's making its way here. Because, you know, at first when I started to do research here, all of the information I could find is what we have in the States. And I remember before I used to balk at that because, say, we were different. But, you know, it's so similar now. There's hardly any different at all. The only thing is we haven't done the research. We just, haven't, we just don't have it uh, 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 categorized and all of that. But all, most of the time it's very similar. And so I have no problems with that now. Demanding, now here's the thing, it goes into the right now to commit suicide because that's what euthanasia is. Demanding a right to commit suicide. That's the direction we're going. This is probably the second most command, uh, common point pro-euthanasia uh, people bring up in the, is this so-called right. We have a right to choose our death. We have a right to choose when we want to die. We have a right to choose how we want to die. Is that true, is the question. But what we are talking about, really, now think this through, please. 
What we're talking about is not giving a right to the person who is killed, but the person who does the killing. In other words, euthanasia is not about the right to die, it's about the right to kill. Because euthanasia has to do with hurrying up death. It's the right to kill, not just the right to die. Think it through. See if that's true or not. Euthanasia is not about giving rights to the person who dies, but instead it's about changing the law and public policy so that doctors, relatives, and others can directly and intentionally end another person's life. That's the right you're giving. People do not have the power to commit suicide. I'm sorry, people do have the power to commit suicide. You can commit suicide anytime you want in the privacy of your own home, right? You could commit suicide anytime you want. Suicide and attempted suicide are not criminalized. It's very hard to charge a person for killing themselves. Suicide is tragic, but is, a wor- is an action that is done by the person. So when we talk about euthanasia now, we're talking about giving the right to somebody else to kill you, to tell you when you're going to die and how you're going to die. That's the right we're talking about. So make sure. That's the same way with abortion, the right to choose. The right to choose was before you had the, the relationship that caused the pregnancy, you see. They call it pro-life. But is it pro-life or pro-death? Same, same, same kinds of thinking. Now here's another one, another thing that is given. People should not be forced to stay alive. Neither the law nor medical ethics require that everything be done to keep a person alive. Now think about that. We like to say everything should be done to keep a person alive. Now, is that true? Insistence against a person's wishes, a death be postponed, postponed by every means available, is contrary to law and practice. It would also be cruel and inhumane. Do you agree with that? Think it through now. Right off you won't, but think it through. Listen to this one. There comes a time when continued attempts to cure are not compassionate, wise, or medically sound. This is where what now hospices have come into, which is a relatively new thing. When I say that, for the past decade, including in-home hospice care can be of such help. In other words, uh, you just care for the person until they die. You don't keep them on machines. You don't do all. You just care for the person until they die, what we call a natural death. That is a time when all efforts should be placed on making the patient's remaining time comfortable as possible. Then, all interventions should be directed to alleviating pain and other symptoms as well as to the provision of emotional and spiritual support for both the patients and the patient's loved one. In other words, this idea to do everything, spend all your money, sell your house, mortgage home, everything, just to keep a person alive. We're saying that's not always necessary. You see, even the law does not demand that. You see, morally as well. And we could give you biblical examples. Uh, there's quite an interesting story about when uh, 
Saul got killed and Saul killed himself, remember? But we won't look at that tonight. Now here's some arguments against euthanasia, why it shouldn't be done. Euthanasia would not only be for people who are terminally ill. Euthanasia can become a means of lowering health care costs. Euthanasia will become non-voluntarily. Euthanasia is rejection of the importance and value of human life. This is the argument now of people who are against euthanasia. Let's look at them very quickly one by one. First, euthanasia would not only be for people who are terminally ill. This is what we call the slippery slope. Now, there are two problems here. The definition of terminal and the changes that have already taken place to extend euthanasia to those who are not terminally ill. Now, if I ask you what this terminal means, what would you say? Long-term, indefinite, no recovery. That's the end. Terminal means terminate, end, finish. It's done. So when you say this person is terminally ill, that means he's bound to die. Now, this is where they normally go for euthanasia, for they're terminally ill, cannot recover. But you see, that's the problem. Who determines what is terminal? And you're going to see that's being changed medically as well. I mean, it sounds so absolute, but it isn't. You remember this guy we talked about, Kevorkian? This is how he described, this is, this is how, what he said concerning terminal illness. He says, terminal illness was any disease that curtails life even for a day. That's terminal illness. Do you agree with that? Now here's another one. The co-founder of the Hemlock Society, you know what the Hemlock Society is? Anybody? Huh? Suicidal, right. They encourage euthanasia, hemlock. The co-founder, by the way, that's why that was the big argument, because the, the lawyer for Terry's husband once spoke at hemlock's gathering. And, of course, everybody said that shows, you know, where he leaned and so on. The co-founder of the Hemlock Society often refers, now listen to this one, terminal old age. Now, they're trying to define when old age begins. You see? Because once you reach that age, <laughs> you're terminal. One man has already, one man has already determined that it's age 85, like I mentioned this morning. Some are getting, anyway, you don't want to get that one. But I just want you to see, you've got to watch out how you look at these terms, how they are used. All right? Listen to this. Some laws define terminal condition as one from which death will occur in a relatively short term. Now, what does relative mean? You see? That's what they were saying about... I, we could tell you all stories. You, you know about Quinlan. You, you know about a lot of people. They're terminally ill. But 10, 15 years later, they came out of it. You see? Others state that terminal means that death is expected within six months. Now, this is becoming more popular. Terminal means if you're going to be sure that you can die within six months. Six months seems to be the cutoff point now. Even when a specific life expectancy, like six months, is referred to, medical experts acknowledge that it is virtually impossible to predict the life expectancy of a particular patient. I mean, great. Finally, they come to realize you cannot predict anything with absolute assurance when it comes to death. Why? Because in the final analysis, God is the one who determines these things. We like to think we are. 
Some people diagnosed as terminally ill don't die for years of it all from the diagnosed condition. I know some people who have been diagnosed, I've read of people being diagnosed with certain things, you'll die in six months. They live for 12, 15 years and then they were killed by a car walking across the street. You see? Increasingly, however, euthanasia supporters have dropped reference to terminal illness, replacing them now with such phrases as hopelessly ill, because the terminal don't mean anything anymore now. So it's hopeless now. Or desperate. Or incurably ill. Or hopeless condition. They don't say terminal anymore, because terminal now has no meaning. Isn't that amazing? Meaningless life. See, that's the interesting one. This is where quality comes in. Their life is meaningless. There they are. Look at Terry. Her life is meaningless. She ain't given anything to anybody. Parents say, yes, she's given something to me. She's not contributing. All she's doing is taking resources. Money, 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 money. And we're going to see in a moment, that's a big thing as to who dies too. Money. How much it costs to keep them alive. Really? It's amazing we were going, folks. And I hope you're thinking about this now in your own life, your own family, your own children. An article in the journal Suicide and Life, Threatening Behavior, described assisted suicide guidelines for those with a hopeless condition. This is what they say. Hopeless condition was defined to include, one, terminal illness is hopeless now. Two, severe physical or psychological pain. Three, these are hopeless people. Physical or mental debilitation or deterioration or a quality of life that is no longer acceptable to the individual. Now tell me something. Look at that and what is your first thought? Now these are hopeless people. That's right. Everybody can fit in that. Sometime. That means just about anybody who has a suicidal impulse or a little depressed, I can't live. I don't want to live no more. Kill them. Get them out of their misery. That's the direction we're going. That's, you see, why I'm bringing all these things is there's an atmosphere that is being built within the medical community now with this kind of a thinking. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, there's a bias that is being established in the medical world. Now, of course, there's some doctors that are different. But generally speaking, that's the atmosphere, you see. And you have to keep that in mind when you're thinking about the places that you go. Now, here's another one. Euthanasia can become a means of lowering health care costs. We talked about that. You see, what we're trying to say here is that when we come to this point where we're saying that we killing of people who are not don't have quality of life is a necessary thing. Why? In order to keep down health care costs. You want good treatment at a, at a hospital when you go? Well, let's make sure all the old people over 85 are killed. Because then that will cut down on your bedroom, in your room in the hotel or the hospital. You see, that's, that's where they're going here. The cost of health care is a major concern of both government here and health care providers. Lowering costs is a major objective. In such a climate, euthanasia is an almost certain target area. Why is it that sometimes people, uh, the doctors let you out when you don't feel like you want to get out? 
Cut the cost, or they want to bring, they want to make it faster to make more money. Now, sometimes it's worked the other way as well. If business isn't good, they can keep you in as long as they can. No, that's true. That has happened. Huh? There you go. Now, in the in the United States, thousands of people have no medical insurance. The same way it's in the states, of course. And studies have shown that the poor and minorities generally are not given access to available pain control and managed care facilities. And they are offering physicians cash bonuses if they don't provide care for patients. This, this insurance companies. Listen to this quote. Physician-assisted suicide, that's what they call PAS, if it became widespread, could become a profit-enhancing tool for big HMOs. Drugs used in an assisted suicide cost only about $40. But that, it could take 40000 to treat a patient properly so that they don't want the choice of assisted suicide. Now, you think they're going to choose the $40,000? $40 drug is best. Emotional and psychological pressures could become overpowering for depressed or dependent people. If the choice of euthanasia is considered as good as a decision to receive care, many people will feel guilty for not choosing death. Now, many this happens, and, and there, there, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of record for this for old people. They feel like they become a burden to their family, too expensive. So stop it. Just let me die. Financial considerations added to the concern about being a burden could serve as a powerful force that would lead a person to choose euthanasia or assisted suicide. That's already happening. You hear parents who are concerned for the financial well of the children. No, no, don't, no, no, that's all right. Don't let me, just let me stay here. Now, this is cases where care could provide good health, but it's too expensive. See, in situations like that, they say, well, the best thing is to assist them to die. People for euthanasia say that voluntary euthanasia will not lead to involuntary euthanasia. They look at things as simply black and white. In real life, there would be millions of situations each where the cases would not fall clearly into either category. In other words, what we're saying here is the people who are for euthanasia, uh, they, they like to say, you know, it's either or. It's just one way or the other. Uh, and you're not going to go into involuntary euthanasia if you go into this way we're talking about. But this, listen to two examples that I chose from many others I could find. Example one, an elderly person in a nursing home who can barely understand a breakfast menu is asked to sign a form consenting to be killed. Question, is this voluntary or involuntary? Will they be protected by the law? If so, how? In in the situation today with the laws. Right now, the overall prohibition on killing, murder, stands in the way. But once one signature can sign away a person's life, what can be as strong a protection as the current absolute prohibition on direct killing? Nothing. What he's saying is here, once a person signs that sheet, nothing can stop them from being killed. See, right now, you, you can't go into it and say, let's do this, because then you'll be murdering the person. But you get that person to sign. 
But what they're saying is they're find a lot of people who understand with designing, especially in the situation that they find themselves. You see? Secondly, a woman is suffering from depression and asked to be helped to commit suicide. One doctor sets up a practice to help such people. By the way, that's already beginning in the States. She and anyone who wants to die knows he will approve any such requests. He does thousands of these a year for $200 each. That is, providing ways for people to kill themselves. How does the law protect people from him? Does it specify that the doctor can only approve 50 requests a year? 100? 150? Now, if you don't think there are such doctors, this report says, just look at recent stories of doctors and nurses who are charged with the murder of killing dozens of hundreds of patients. You read about it, Avenger, about these nurses who had mercy killing. In many cases, they were paid by the people to do it. You see? There was one fellow who got caught up, I think, in Illinois. He had done over 100. 100. You see? And they were paid to do it. People say, oh, that can't happen. Oh, that's what they said in California when they legalized drugs for medical use. Now anybody could go and buy drugs anywhere. You would get it anywhere you want. They said it'll never happen. You get all kinds of restrictions. But that's what's happening. That's what he called the slippery slope. All right. There's another thing that they say that euthanasia will become non-voluntary. This is what we're saying. If you keep going down there, in other words, it's going to become non-voluntary. It's going to be done whether we choose it or not. Legalized euthanasia would most likely progress to the stage where people at a certain point would be expected to volunteer to be killed. After you become a certain age, a certain state, it's just expected of you to kill yourself or allow yourself to be killed. If you didn't, you'd be going against the good of the community. Think about this. Ten years from now, if a doctor told you your mother's quality of life was not worth living for and asked you as the closest family member to approve a quick, painless ending of her life and you refused, how would doctors, nurses, and others conditioned to accept euthanasia as normal and right treat you and your mother? Or what if the approval was sought from your mother who was depressed by her illness? Would she have the strength to refuse what everyone in a nursing home expected from seriously ill and elderly people? See, environment. We're creating a certain environment where certain things are expected. It isn't done. We are going to be the culprits. And this is what's happening when it comes to euthanasia. Then, the final one, I think this is the final. Euthanasia is the rejection of the importance and value of human life. This, to me, is the major reason why we should be against it. We can give some other biblical ones, but I think it's so clear. You really need no argument. I don't see why we have to argue about these things, really, if you know Scripture. Really, I don't. When we come to euthanasia. Euthanasia is the rejection of the importance and value of human life. People who support euthanasia often say that it is already considered permissible to take human life under some circumstances, such as self-defense. But they miss the point that when one kills for self-defense, they are saving innocent life, either their own or someone else's. But when euthanasia occurs, no one's life is being saved, is being taken. You cannot have euthanasia and save somebody's life. Euthanasia is always the taking of somebody's life. So you can't put that in the same category as self-defense. Let's look at it from a biblical point of view then. And uh, again, I've written this out for you. 
foundational to a biblical perspective on euthanasia is the proper understanding of the sanctity of human life. We talked about that this morning. For centuries, Western culture, including the Bahamas in in general, and Christians in particular, have believed in the sanctity of human life. But today, this view is beginning to erode into a quality of life standard. The disabled, the retarded, and infirm were seen as having a special place in God's world. That should be true before, you know. But today, medical personnel judge a person's fitness for life on the basis of a perceived quality of life or lack of such quality. It's amazing how things have changed. Before, there was real sympathy for the retarded and those who couldn't care for themselves. And everybody wants to do what what we can to help. Now that is changing. They're in the way. They're too costly. They're too problematic. The best thing for them to do is to be killed. No longer is life seen as sacred and worthy of being saved. Now patients are evaluated and life-saving treatment is frequently denied based on a subjective and arbitrary standard for the supposed quality of life determined by man, normally from a humanistic perspective. If a life is judged not worthy to be lived any longer, people feel obliged to end that life. That just makes sense. It's the logical thing to do. That's the utilitarian thing to do. The Bible teaches, however, that human beings are created in the image of God and therefore have dignity and value. We talked about that this morning. Human life is sacred and should not be terminated merely because life is difficult or inconvenient. See, that's where it is. That's why they want to kill. Because it's difficult or it's inconvenient. It costs too much money. Or it's too much on me and my family. Too much. And therefore, let's... Psalm 139 teaches that humans are fearfully and wonderfully made. Listen to the passage. It says, for, let's read that together if you don't mind. Psalm 139, 13. Let's read it together. For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works. That's us, by the way. The works is us. Wonderful are thy work. Let's go on. I am fearfully and... and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. Notice now, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This passage teaches a lot of wonderful things. First, that we're wonderful <laughs> because we create the image of God. First, secondly, God is the one who started our life. He determined when we're going to be when we were made, when we were born. Thirdly, He determines when we die. Right here, not us. The same way we have no choice in when we are born. Scripture teaches we shall have no choice in when we die. Society then must not place an arbitrary standard of quality above God's absolute standard of human value and worth. Nor should we. We should not encourage that. The Bible also teaches that God is sovereign over life and death. Christians can agree with Job when he said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gave when he wanted and he takes away when he wants. The Lord said, see now that I myself am he. 
There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. That's God. God has ordained our days and is in control of our lives. Do you believe that? The death of his saints is precious in his sight. As we said in Psalm 116, right? We must not dare to destroy, disturb, or deny the preciousness of the death of the saints of God's people. The death is precious in his sight. That's the death that he manages and, under, and, and, and oversees. Now, another foundational principle involves the biblical view of life-taking. The Bible specifically condemns murder. Thou shalt not murder. That's the command. And this would include active forms of euthanasia in which another person, doctor, nurse, or friends hastens death in the patient. It's also true when you take your own life, you're murdering yourself. And the scripture prohibits that. Because of the sanctity of life. The Bible is clear on it. Thou shalt not murder, whether it's somebody else or yourself. While there are situations described in Scripture in which life-taking may be permitted, like self-defense or a just war, euthanasia should not be included with any of these established biblical categories. Active euthanasia, like murder, involves premeditated intent and therefore must be condemned as being both immoral and criminal. Christians should also reject the attempt by the modern euthanasia movement to promote the so-called right to die. And what disturbs me, I hear so many Christians using that today. They have a right to die, meaning they have a right to choose when they die and how they die. Secular society's attempt to establish this right is wrong for two reasons. One, giving a person the right to die is tantamount to promoting suicide. And suicide is condemned in the Bible. Man is forbidden to murder, and that includes murder of oneself. Moreover, Christians are commanded to love others as they love themselves. Implicit in the command is an assumption of self-love as well as love for others. Now let me ask you something. When you kill yourself, are you showing love for yourself? When you assist somebody in killing themselves, are you showing love for your neighbor? Suicide, however, is not an example of self-love. It's perhaps the clearest example of self-hate. Suicide is also usually a selfish act. Now, let's get this one. People kill themselves to get away from pain and problems, often leaving those problems to friends and family members who must pick up the pieces when the one who committed suicide is gone. So it's selfish. They don't want to deal with it, so I can kill myself and let you deal with it. Second, this so-called right to die denies God the opportunity to work sovereignly within a shattered life and bring glory to himself. And we have so many stories again and again of people who are right to the end, all kinds of ways, but yet God has brought them back and have given them life and liberty and so on. When Joni Erickson, for instance, realized that she would be spending the rest of her life as a quadriplegic, she asked in despair, why can't they just let me die as Johnny? And a friend, Diana, trying to provide comfort, said to her, The past is dead, Joni. You are alive. Joni responded, Am I? This isn't living. That's how she felt. If you had a good doctor there, euthanasia, they would have killed her right then. 
But through God's grace, Johnny's despair gave way to a firm conviction that even her accident was within God's plan for her life. Today, she with the world. Uh, today, she with the world. She. Uh, she tells the world. She ministers the world with firm conviction that suffering gets us ready for heaven. This is how she lives her life now. Seeing, she even thanks God for the accident. Because she sees sufferings as a way of preparing for heaven. That's what Pope John said too. That's the very same thing. Whatever you think about Pope John, he looked at the suffering as a way of preparing him from heaven. So does Johnny Erickson. The Bible teaches that God's purposes are beyond our understanding. Job's reply to the Lord shows his acknowledgement of God's purposes. I know, says Job, that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscure my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to do. The whole point is we cannot take God's place. We don't know what we think we know. That's why I were terminally ill, and yeah, this guy is hopeless, only God can say things like that. Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Another foundation principle is the biblical view of death. Death is both unnatural and inevitable. It is an unnatural intrusion into our lives as a consequence of the fall. It is the last enemy to be destroyed. Therefore, Christians can reject humanistic ideas that assume death is nothing more than a natural transition. It is not just a natural transition. The Bible also teaches that death under the present conditions is inevitable. There is a time to be born. There is a time to die. And God is the one who sets both of them. Death is a part of life and the doorway to another better life. When does death occur? Modern medicine defines death primarily as a biological event. Brain stop, heart stop. Yet scripture defines death as a spiritual event that has biological consequences. Spiritual event that has biological consequences, the death of the body. Um, modern medicine defines death primarily as a biological Death, according to the Bible, occurs when the spirit leaves the body. Notice what it says here. Ecclesiastes 12. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is, bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the, of the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. The spirit will return to God who gave it. Notice what James says. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And of course, that brings in a whole another interesting discussion about how do we know when the spirit leaves the body. That will be another message. Beloved, our times are in his hands. And our death is precious in his sight. Because we are made in his image. Let us not shy away from death. But at the same time, let us not act as though our bodies belong to us. And we can dispose of it any way we like. We must treat it for what it is. The temple of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. What? No, you know what? Your body is not your own. It belongs to God. We have to have directions from him as to how to treat it. And he gives us that directions in scripture. Sila. Think. And again I say, think and act 
on these things.